This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. You are listening to 3RRR. If you uh, have just tuned in for the last hour, you would have heard the great team from Radiotherapy. We've got you now for an hour of science before we hand over to Edith. In the studio with me is Dr. Lyndon. Good morning. Morning, Dr. Shane. How are you going? I'm good. Just you and me. Just you and me. Skeleton crew. Skeleton crew. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) A-team. We'll be right. Uh, Everyone's away. Everyone's just having... Just junkets, no, not junkets. Yeah, well, I'm no, sure no, they're no, off. Scientific conferences. Very important conferences, yeah. very important warm climate conferences <laughs> somewhere <laughs> tropical and lovely where they're doing very long hours of science. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. like the Bahamas. And, yeah, yeah, all those places. Dr. Catherine's normally in today, but she's off sunning it somewhere, I suspect, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we have a big show for you lined up today, folks. We've got um, some news from me and Dr. Lyndon in just a moment, and then we have a phone interview from one of um, the new Tor Poppy recipients this year, and then we're going to come back and talk about some amazing uh, science programs that are happening around town, uh, which is uh, part of our sort of citizen science sort of stuff that we've been doing over the last month. But Dr. Lyndon, let's start off with some news. What it's been uh, rocking your boat this week. Well, Dr. Shane, this week I want to report a study that I came across of vital importance, something that has global implications. That's right. I read a study about bubbles. <laughs> bubbles. Bubbles, that's okay. right. Not yep. just any kind of bubbles, levitating bubbles. Oh, levitating bubbles. Levitating. I knew I like I'd that. get yeah, your yeah, attention yeah. with yep. that one. All right, so this is a paper that was published in Nature Communications this week by a group of researchers in China, but also collaborators, a collaborator at Monash and a collaborator mm-hmm. in the UK, and they have managed to use sound waves to create bubbles. To create bubbles. To create bubbles. Yeah. Are we, we going to get to sonoluminescence here, that really cool thing where you use sound waves and bubbles and you create light when they no. collapse? No, oh, not, not quite that. Oh, come on. Bu- oh, okay. Yeah. Bubbles made out of sound are still are cool. pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. So I'd never heard of this before. You might have heard of it already, but fluid dynamics researchers actually use sound waves in lots of different ways. So they already, mm. what they do is they use a machine that emits a sound wave and then it bounces back and you create resonant waves or standing waves Mm -hmm. and they have used this in the past to get uh, a liquid and they create a kind of a disc they can flatten it out into a disc and then they Mm. can buckle Mm. it and look at different properties of fluids and how they buckle under different pressures Mm. and this kind of stuff but these researchers have taken it a step further Mm -hmm. they used a fluid that i've written down i'm going to read it uh, so i don't stuff it up sodium lauryl sulfate sounds good sounds good sounds like some kind of salt yeah, I think it's, they use it in a lot of cosmetics. It might be in mm. quite a few of your shampoos. Check okay. your shampoo bottle next time you have a shower. So they've used this. They have uh, set up these standing waves. They inject the fluid into these standing waves and then they've flattened it out into a disc. They've curved it, used the kind of diff- different uh, forces by changing the frequency, the intensity of the sound waves to make it into kind of a bowl shape. And nobody can see this, but I'm making weird yeah. hand gestures. Yeah, here. the hand gestures that help me. Um, and there's all, <laughs> actually there's amazing videos online that accompany this yep. paper. So if you, I'll put them up on Twitter afterwards. And, and so they make this bowl shape, right? And then you've got this force difference between the lower pressure in kind of this inside this, it's called a resonance cave inside the standing waves, if you imagine sine curves and cos curves mm. that are kind of out of sync with each other. And gravity, right? So you've got this lower pressure above and gravity below. And the way that the fluid manages that 
Pops a bubble. Pop makes a bubble. Cool. Makes a bubble. Yeah. yeah. So the bubbles uh, can last for tens of minutes, apparently, and the ones that they show in the paper are about half a centimetre in size. Oh, that's huge. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, another small bubble. Five millimetres, I think that's what they said, unless mm. I was me- reading it incorrectly. Mm. Uh, and, yeah, and this is the first time that they've kind of used sound waves to make a bubble like this, go from drop to bubble instead yeah. of bubble to drop. But this sort of stuff has normally. incredible applications because Absolutely. you can use bubbles, like you can use that sort of... Um, sonication to the scenario for mm. cleaning, for um, making chemicals mix. You yep. can do all sorts of things once you get... Because essentially you're getting energy into into the fluid. Well, that's that's what they're saying, that they're mm. using the sound energy not just to kind of hold the bubble, but to also create the bubble, mm. which is yeah. amazing. And I know I made fun of it, but it actually has large implications for the pharmaceutical industry yeah, in particular, yeah. creating foams and different ways that liquids can be applied. And I just think it's fascinating that... There's still so much study going on on these basic interactions between fluids and forces and, and how they mix with each other. Yeah. And bubbles, oh, just how great are bubbles? It seems like we're, we're both in the same realm of science today because one of the things that I, I've looked up uh, over this week was this great paper that came out in Nature Biomedical Engineering on the 11th of September. Mm-hmm. And this was by a group at University of California, San Diego. And before I tell you what they've done, I'm going to sort of just give you a little bit on what, what is normally done and what they've managed to replace. So, you know, when you go to the doctor and you get your blood pressure taken, you know, mm-hmm. they, they whack a thing around your, your arm and you get your peripheral blood pressure taken. So this is the blood pressure in your extremities and, you know, in your smaller veins and arteries and so forth. And it's not that accurate. I mean, it's reasonably accurate, but mm-hmm. it's not it's not that accurate. It's not. It's not the same as the pressure that you would measure inside, you know, around the heart, around the main arteries between the heart and the. And is that the sort the of pressure organs. you generally need to know about? And and so you you might want to know more about that pressure if you had, for example, cardio problems or so forth. You want a more a more precise measure of the pressure in real time. Um, in that sense. Now, there is a way to do that, though. There's, um, you can shove a catheter into someone, usually up through the groin or various other places. It's not fun. Sounds violent. Um, sounds violent. Um, and you can't really do it at home. Mm-hmm. And that's, um, and that will give you a far more, that will give you your, um, what's called your central blood pressure, which is sort of more what people want to know. So mm-hmm. this, is, this is very specific. It's not what you get when you go to your GP. The problem is, of course, you know, you don't want to be shoving catheters into people all the time to do this. Now, of course, if you're, you know, getting heart surgery or whatever, that's what they do and, you know, so it's monitored. Um, there's a few other ways of doing it. There's a couple of other devices on the on the market where you, you hold these, you have to sort of hold these things against certain parts of your body, but they're very dependent on exactly the direction you hold these things in. Oh, and, so you couldn't do you it know, unless you were trained, really. And so, well, even then, the, the, the precision of them is a little low. Okay. Um, well, a procedure, might, a procedure might be high. They might get it wrong exactly the same time, the same way all the time, whereas the accuracy Accuracy might be low. Important distinction. So this this is sort of like, well, how do you you know how do you go about measuring this blood pressure? Because what you need to be able to do is you need to be able to dive about four centimeters into the body to get you measure measuring the blood pressure about four centimeters yeah. inside the body, which wow. is not something that you can easily do. Anyway, this this group out of the University of California have been working on essentially what is a wearable ultrasound device. So what you want to think about here is. You're all, you know, you know, you get some of those um, sort of almost like scarves that are made up of little little beads separated by strings. Oh yeah, yeah, you yep. know, like and you get some dresses like that. You, you like the scarf you got on right now? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, this okay. purple one. Um, but you know, like you get these these sort of almost like little beads or little buttons oh, that are separated yeah. by strings and they mm-hmm. make up a mesh, like a, like a sequin sort yeah, of. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. So if you think about that sort of material, but with each one of those little buttons or beads being a little electronic emitter of ultrasound oh, and wow. detector mm-hmm. and all connected up by little wires. Now, what, what this group have done, 
they've made a material like that that is then also sticky that you would stick on your body and and it's so it's a wearable but it manages to pump the ultrasound waves sound waves in about four centimeters into your body and it can measure with high high accuracy actually mm-hmm. your um, central blood pressure really so this is this is amazing like it's something that if you think about it it's not it's not easy to get this measurement. And so the, the other version that's around is this thing that you hold against yourself. And, and it depends where you hold it, right? So it's problematic. Whereas with this, you, you stick it on and it stays put. So it stays in the same position all the time. It gets calibrated and then it measures that central blood pressure quite accurately to a depth of four centimetres, which is all you need to do this. So, um, I mean, these things are, you know, in, in train, they're being, you know, being built, but yeah. um, they're working. And I just think... Ultrasound is one of those areas where I suspect we've really underutilized it in medicine over the years because we've used it for imaging only. I remember a few years back there was a paper that came out saying that with ultrasonic waves you could allow chemicals to pass through the blood-brain barrier because the ultrasound Whoa. was kind of kind of mixing things up a bit yeah. and opening up opening up some of the little pathways mm-hmm. that could allow that. Mm-hmm. So ultrasound to me is just one of those areas where we've we've used it for imaging, but we haven't used it for a lot of other things and oh. there's potential there for a lot of stuff. But these um you know wearable patches so it's you know, a patch it's, it's a not patch. it's not like a vest no you have it's to a wear. little you can see it, i'm holding oh, a picture up to dr yeah, Linda, but like it looks bit, like a band-aid like a little band-aid and it has this really small microsurgery uh microcircuitry on it and it allows you to um basically you know put ultrasound in and detect it coming back and measure blood pressure. And would you have to have it attached to a big wire that you'd have to carry around with no, you? Or? No, these things are all, you know, they're all done wirelessly and, you know, these days you don't need that sort of stuff, so it's pretty cool. And the, the interesting thing is each one of, so if you think of the, each of these little beads that's, you know, at a sort of point, mm-hmm. um, each of them has what's called a little piezoelectric transducer. So this is the sort of thing you'd have in a in a microphone, for example. And what this is, when you put electricity on it, it changes shape, it, it, it contracts, mm-hmm. and you can make that, you know, put out sound, um, same way a speaker works and so forth. So, you know, these things are very small, but they're actually, they're based on the technology that in a way is very old. You know, this sort, yeah. of, this sort of technology is very old. Yeah. Miniaturizing it is not. Yep. That's the new part. But the technology itself, we, we understand really well. So it's not like a you know, brand new technology. And so, yeah, it's, um, it's cool stuff. Again, really, just um, using this like basic science in lots of exciting yeah, new ways yeah. you know sound we yeah we're all over that but. And, and, the, and the best thing of course is that you know if you think about ultrasounds and what they can tell you once they can tell you blood pressure they can tell you a lot of other things as well so they can be used to you know monitor a whole of things yeah. in the body not just blood pressure because yeah, well, that's you know. what i was wondering if you if you're trying to get four centimeters into the body mm. you know what's the other interference of the other things that are going on in yeah, the body how yeah. can you hone the ultrasound into that i guess you've got to calibrate yeah it to they the calibrate. Right. and if you if you think of your body from front to back and you sort of just you know don't do this at home folks but if you push in by four centimeters and you think <laughs> okay what am i missing though like if i if i if i go four centimeters in from all sides i'm actually interacting with a fair part of my body so if you think of the head and the body you know four centimeters in is a fair way um you know depending on your exact physical shape but four centimeters is a fair you know over an inch it's a it's a fair way mm. into the body and you can get a fair bit of information within four centimeters and, and it may be that they extend that range over time but uh for the moment four centimeters is so the obnoxious good. question any word about when this technology is coming to australia well <laughs> australia is a different matter but um they're already they're already testing these um and you know it's, it's a fair way before they're sort of in clinics mm-hmm. you know but but these things you know this sort of stuff comes out pretty quick and as i said a lot of it's based on all the 
all the technologies and, and it's the sandwiching of these things into really thin, almost like, as you say, Band-Aid-like structures yeah. that that's new and that's, um, that's cool. And it, means, and it means they'll be cheap. You, know, you think you, so? Well, they won't. Well, it'd be cheaper than buying an ultrasound well, or, yeah, or, okay. or a catheter machine that yes. you can shove into your, yeah. you know, one of your main arteries, which is not. Uh, uh, you know, and I'm you sure, like it. you say, the the miniaturising is the big thing. And so once you've done it for one kind of piece of technology mm. like this, it might be a bit of a tipping point. And then before you yeah. know it, other devices and other pieces of machinery would just. You and know, the key thing with this market. is, you know, with, with the wearables market, of course, is that, you know, if you have a, a patient who has cardiovascular issues, you want to be able to send them away and monitor their central blood pressure yeah. in real time. In real time, time, not at the hospital data. when they're stressed exactly. already. You know, or... have, that, have that data constantly flowing in and collected. Mm. And these are the sorts of things that will enable you to do that um, in much the same way that at the moment our phones monitor our walking, our steps and everything, whether you yeah. know it does or not, they, they all do it. They all have accelerometers in them and they can all monitor that information. So mm. it's just another another piece of health data that we'll oh, be able to exciting. collect. So anyway, good not stuff. Not quite bubbles exciting, but still pretty well, exciting. You know, you know, <laughs> we've, all got, we've all got our bubbles. So, <laughs> Folks, we're going to take a short break for some uh, music and when we come back we'll be speaking to uh, one of the researchers from Macquarie University. So uh, stay tuned. You're listening to 3 Triple R. Three, triple ah. Ah, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Triple R. On the phone now, we have uh, Dr. Simon Gross. He's from the Photonics Research Centre at Macquarie University. Simon, can you hear us? Yeah, I can, yeah. Now, hey, you, you? I'm good. You, you uh, have been named one of the 2008 Young Tall Poppy Science Award winners. Can you tell us a bit about uh, what that program's about and what you get? Yeah, so um, that program um, is about uh, outreach and uh, communicating your research. Um, so we receive media training. It's a great honour. Um, and um, we uh, get to go out to schools and uh, do outreach and uh, tell uh, high school students uh, about our research. Sounds fantastic. Now, do you, um, do you get training as part of the program or are you assumed to already be, you know, amazing communicators when you sort of come in? How does that work? Um, you get a, get a bit of both. Uh, you, um, um, you have to um, pitch your research um, as part of the selection process, mm -hmm. uh, but then they also provide uh, further media training. Okay. Hi, Simon. It's Dr. Linden here. Uh, congratulations on the award. That's very exciting. We have a couple of tall poppies on our uh, co-host list here, and I know they really enjoyed the experience. What are you looking forward to the most in this? Are you excited to, you know, communicate your research in a different way, or do you really want to reach out to the kids? What's you, what are you most excited about? Um, I'm probably uh, most excited about um, yeah, communicating to the kids and um, uh, finding new angles on uh, how to communicate um, the type of research I'm doing. Mm. Now, now, let's talk about that because uh, you work in the area of photonics, which is uh, near and dear to my heart as well. That was my area of research when I was a physicist. Um, tell us what you're doing there. You're, you're working on particular modification of um, pieces of glass to, to make them more optically active, I assume? Yeah, exactly. So um, uh, what I'm working on is um, uh, processing of, of glass to make uh, tiny optical chips that uh, process light uh, similar and, uh, to an electronic chip that would process uh, electrical signals. 
um, and the types of uh, optical chips I'm making, they're, um, they're applied to a variety of uh, research fields um, like uh, astronomical imaging, um, speeding up uh, fiber optic communication networks, um, as well as uh, stimulating uh, nerves. So, so you com- you mentioned that uh, the comparable to optical uh, to electronic devices. How do you go about changing the glass to to do that? Is it do, are you doping it? Are you modifying it another way? How do you how do you f- change the glass? Um, so, uh, what's involved there is um, we use a very special kind of laser that emits uh, very short uh, bursts of light. Um, mm-hmm. These bursts of light are. Um, uh, a billions of a millions of a second short. Uh, that is similar to uh, to one minute. Uh, so that that compared a second to uh, such a short uh, burst of light is uh, similar to comparing a minute to the age of the universe. So it's a really short uh, burst of light, mm-hmm. but they contain a substantial amount of energy. And what that does is um, these lasers create a very high uh, peak power for a very short period of time. And um, we focus this laser into into a glass. And um, as you know, glass is a very transparent material. And, and in fact, uh, the glass we are using is transparent to the color of light that the laser emits. But because we're focusing it uh, so tightly, um, we get a very high intensity, and um, that results in a very localized modification of, of the glass. So we modify the chemical structure of the glass, which means we break bonds in the glass network, we rearrange bonds in a glass network, um, up to actually physically displacing the different atoms that are within the glass. And um, what that um, does for us, it, it um, changes the properties of, of the glass in a way that it has got a higher optical density. And um, if you've got a material with a high optical density, then you can uh, confine light in that uh, tiny little uh, modification that we create. That's fascinating, Simon. Now, are we talking about your standard glass that you have in your window or thicker glass, thinner glass? What sort of glass are we talking about? Um, it's, it's, uh, the process itself is uh, fairly universal because we can trigger this process in a, in a variety of glasses. Uh, that can be actually a window glass. Um, so, for instance, uh, uh, a lot of the optical chips that are making, they use a glass which is very similar to the, the display glass on your smartphone. Hmm. So this is this is a glass that has been engineered to um, um, have a very high mechanical robustness, and that's great for our process. And as it turns out, um, to achieve that mechanical robustness, you you put in the elements that we need to um, uh, to create our uh, optical wires. So does that mean we could be moving towards a semi-transparent iPhone? Um, you could. Uh, one thing you could do is you could um, integrate um, uh, sensors. Into, into the glass of your display. So um, you could integrate um, a sensor for uh, uh, analyzing blood, for instance, if you wanted to. Mm. Uh, obviously, no one wants to put their uh, $1,000 uh, iPhone under, uh, under a laser and risk uh, uh, breaking it, but uh, there is, it's uh, definitely a possibility. It'd be cool to try that. Simon, in terms of the size of these um, devices that you're writing, I mean, I assume that the uh, the optical laser system there is sort of limited by the diffraction limit, so you can't get below about what half a half a micron. So, is how big are we talking about in terms of that sort of you know analog of the electronic circuitry in the glass? 
Um, so typically the, the optics wire are, um, um, have got a diameter which is roughly uh, a tenth of a human hair. So mm -hmm. we're talking about 10 microns. Yep. Um, and uh, that typically our glass chips are uh, usually uh, a couple of centimeters in size. It's sort of the typical size. So um, it's not as highly integrated as, as an electronic circuit. Uh, but it's it's a reasonably small size. Mm. And in terms of the advantages of using the sort of optical analog, what are they? I mean, what does this get you over using an electronic circuit? Um, with an electronic circuit, um, um, if you want to process a light signal, you always have to convert from from the optical domain into the electronic domain, and then you have to convert back um, from the electronic into the optical domain with. Uh, with the the optical process, we can get we can uh, get totally around that. So uh, we can completely process in the uh, in the optical domain, mm. which ma which makes it more efficient mm. and faster. Now, have you started? I mean, you're obviously making these at the moment. Have you started to use them in applications? Is there an application you're particularly interested in with these? Um, so. Um, my research focus at the moment is uh, using those um, uh, optical circuits for optical communication. Um, some very smart researchers um, uh, um, found out a couple of years ago that um, the optical fibers that uh, are currently the backbone of the internet um, have got an inherent um, uh, limitation in terms of uh, data rate. Um, but as as we know, um, we keep uh, demanding more and more data. Um, we've got artificial intelligence, uh, machine learning, and so forth, and that generates um, enormous amounts of data. So in order to get around this bottleneck, um, we need new technologies to, to scale the transmission capacity of the fiber. And uh, that involves a new type of fiber, which um, can support uh, different shapes of light. And uh, you can use each shape of light as an individual data channel. So if you replace your existing fiber with a new fiber that might support 10 shapes of light, you can uh, right away increase the capacity by a factor of 10. But with this technique, uh, the challenge is that um, you need a way of uh, generating those shapes and sorting those shapes at the, at the other end of your communication link. And um, they, these are the kind of optical chips I'm making. So I'm making um, chips that, that are able to generate those shapes very efficiently. They interface with this new type of fiber, and they're also able to sort the shapes at the other end to um, um, uh, change or uh, well, uh, regain your, uh, your individual data streams. Simon, look, it's fascinating stuff, and I, I, I love the ability you've got there to use these ultra-fast lasers to, to carve out, essentially, you know, circuitry in, in these pieces of standard glass. I mean, it's, it's fascinating, and I, I assume you can do it with all sorts of other polymer and crystalline materials as well because um, they all sort of run under similar, similar principles. Good luck with the Tall Poppy program. I hope you go out and, uh, you know, talk to some good schools. Um, my advice to Tall Poppies, as I was one myself, is to always find the... The hardest schools you can find. Don't go to the private schools. Go to the rough schools where they they never they never see anyone from the universities. You know, they, they we universities never pay attention to them in the same way. So go go out to those schools where they they don't hear about as much science and and do some good. Good luck with it. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much, Simon. This is Dr. Simon Gross from the Photonics Research Center at Macquarie University. Interesting stuff. Uh, oh, you know, yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Imagine working with lasers every day. I used to do it. Did it was you? fun. Oh, my yeah, goodness. I love it. You know, you still give me a laser pointer, I go wild. So. <laughs>
<laughs> like a cat. Yeah, back in those days, though, the safety wasn't quite as good. I'm wondering whether my vision's a little bit stuffed as a result. But anyway, uh, we shouldn't say that. I'm, I'm good. They're very safe now. And the tall poppy program, it is wonderful. Imagine, hmm. you know, having someone come out to your school and talk about... Okay, that's pretty complicated stuff, but yeah. I'm sure someone will be able to communicate it in a way that high school students will understand. And you were a tall poppy. Dr. Ailey's a tall poppy. Yeah. Dr. Catherine, Dr. Catherine as well. Yep, a few of us have done it. It's excellent. So, yeah, it's a good program. It's been running for quite a while now mm. too, So, because I, I think mine was like 2005 and I was like in the seventh year or something. So anyway, uh, we digress. Uh, we're going to take a break, folks, for some more music and station announcements, and then we will be back in just a moment with our next guest for today. You're listening to Einstein the Go-Go on 3 R. Three, triple, ah. Yeah, you are listening to 3 Triple Arts, Einstein the Go-Go, it's a science show if you haven't worked that out yet. I'm Dr. Shane, I've got Dr. Lyndon in the studio with me, and we are joined now by Jack Nunn, who is the Director of Science for All. Jack, welcome to Triple R. Thank you very much. Uh, good morning, and thanks very much for having me on the oh, show. Look, it's, it's great to have you in. This is all part of uh, Dr. Lyndon's uh, push for me to get more of the public science stuff that's going on into the studio, which we've had a lot of fun with over the last month. But uh, you're Director of Science for All. First of all, tell us, what is Science for All? Sure. Well, it's a not-for-profit organisation, and we started fairly recently. And yeah, Science for All, for for all life, for everything, and mm. it's it's basically um, a, an education organisation that's trying to support everyone in the world to get involved in shaping the future of human knowledge. And if that sounds lofty and vague, it is. Mm. Um, but so we've we've got a large remit. But uh, it's it's really teaching people how to ask a question. You know, I think. Yes, we can give people knowledge, we can say these things, but it's actually how do we create knowledge? So we, we're actually interested in the process of, of supporting and facilitating people to, to do that. So, for example, we run events such as Campfires and Science, right. where we get people around a campfire and we have experts talk about different areas. But the key part is always, and this is what you can do. Or mm. this is how mm. I found this out. And, mm. and it's that idea of sort of knowledge isn't something fixed, it's something evolving and, and not something just handed down, but actually that, that evolves. So, yeah, that's, that's the broad picture of what we're going to do, but we do sort of practical face-to-face -face events as well. Yeah. And, and with campfires uh, as an example, how do you go about teaching people about the questioning? Because this is one of the things I find with, we're not great at these days, you know, we're not great at being able to ask difficult questions about science and areas of the world in a way that's meaningful. I mean, often, often scientists don't interact well with the public because I think partly because they're not trained to communicate with the public very well, partly because the public doesn't know what sorts of questions they can, they can ask that will get them good answers. How do you frame that up for people in a way where, you know, these sorts of events, the discussion goes well? Yeah, well, I mean, you've used a couple of words there, uh, scientists and uh, the public, and created a linguistic separation. Yeah, yeah, and I think, yeah. you know, the word scientist was coined in 1833 by an English reverend, and before that they were called uh, natural philosophers. Yep. And I think in the word philosophos, philosophy, love of wisdom, we've, we've lost that kind of wisdom coming with the knowledge. And mm. so with the campfire, it really is just let people say, oh, wow, it's quite revolutionary getting people sort of around a, around a campfire and think, well, our ancestors have been doing that doing for, it for a long time, millions of years. <laughs> and that's how we've shared knowledge and, you know, science being another word for that. And so last night, for example, we had... Um, uh, so we just did a campfires and science event yesterday. I we came from it last night, and it it was absolutely fantastic. And uh, you know, with the support of the Royal Society of Victoria, who we're under the auspices of, and we ran it in partnership with Whittlesea Tech Hub, a, a school that sort of sits uh, 
college so it's above a lot of different schools and we had a lot of different guests and one of them was um a Wurundji elder uh, uncle david who was talking about an experimental archaeology project of uh, building a bark canoe and he was really articulately explaining that link between you know this tr- the traditional indigenous knowledge but how it's on this continuum and it needs to interact with mm. current knowledge yes. and um and i think really what i'm trying to do physically with the campfire is bring people from all these fields together you know public health education um environment uh, uh, linguistic divisions between just our planet it's it's all connected and all of the uh things that we require to improve these are interlinked so the solution needs to be too so i guess it's sort of saying well this is what we know how do we know more and you know who are you to tell me what i can't know or what i can mm. know and actually trying to enable and empower people to, to fantastic, ask those questions. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to ask a bit of a joke question now, I think. So I always imagine, I, when I first saw Jack speak about campfires in science, I thought, how amazing, get people out into the bush, you know, to do some science, to learn about some science. But it sounds as though you could say um, it's still a bit of a one-way communication model, what you're talking about there, where you have a lot of experts come and talk about their different topics and people listen. It's just that the environment is different. Is that... Uh. I hope that's wrong. It is. Oh, I'm glad to say, uh, <laughs> and it couldn't be more so. And uh, yeah, that's. But thank you for asking it and reminding me to uh, to make that clearer. Because I was just speaking to some of your previous guests uh, about science communication, and I said, well, you know, communication is part of it. And you know, Arthur C. Clarke said, communication is both an art and a science. And mm. and I think also crucially, communication is two ways. So I, a lot of my sort of work professionally is in what in the UK is called public involvement in science. So it's the idea of instead of just being a recipient of knowledge or or being a participant in research, it's actually being involved two-way. And uh, so, yeah, at our events, yes, last night we had someone talking about environmental DNA and we, we did a world first of uh, trying to look for a platypus in a river and sequenced it by the riverside with a portable machine. And that was, but we got the kids collecting the samples. We showed them how we analysed the DNA. And we've got, um, for example, we've got a, a grant from the Victorian government uh, to go and look for critically endangered species in the Victorian Central Highland using environmental DNA. And in the grant plan, we actually specified that we are be tr- will be training the public, members of the public, to gather the research, uh, to gather the, the DNA, but also involving them in every stage. So designing our research, um, doing it, and then analysing the data and all the data will share open source public domain so anyone can analyse it and if anyone's listening and thinking oh, I'd love to get involved please do uh, we'd love anyone to get involved and so like we have the, the real campfire model we've got a kind of a virtual model as well so we're using an open source online platform called Lumio to sort of collectively make decisions and plan stuff so we're trying to run all our research projects in this way as a sort of because I, really, I, I spend a lot of my time telling research you should, you should involve people and <laughs> I thought well I should probably have a go at doing it myself yeah. And so yeah, that, yeah. that's really what Science for All uh, is, is trying to do and, uh, and is doing. So, uh, again, if you're listening and you want to get involved, so scienceforall.world is, is our website and we're, we're on social media as well with campfires and science and stuff. So please do, uh, if you have something you want to research or you'd like to get involved with our research, get involved. Yeah. I, I love the, sorry, then jump in, but um, I, I love the way you describe this because I remember years ago in this program, I used to say things, you know, for the long time listeners, um, maybe 20 years ago, I used to say that like everyone's born a scientist mm. and we teach pe- some people not to be scientists anymore. And to me, you know, we're born curious. We're born, you know, we put our hands in the fire. We, you know, we, 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 we experiment 
Uh, that's how we learn. That's how humans learn to communicate, how they learn to interact. And, you know, somehow along the line, people, you know, probably through schooling, lose their interest in science, which is a real shame. So it's good to hear that these sorts of things are, are there to bring that back because we, you know, we all are pretty curious when we're kids and when mm. we're younger. And the place is fascinating, you know, I mean, the, the world is fascinating. Anyway, yeah, no. well, and it's good to hear that it's not sort of just a lecture series but with a side of marshmallows. I'm really glad to hear that. <laughs> but, there are marshmallows. Oh, oh well, that bit <laughs> I was hope, excited about, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I just wanted to back up a little bit. eDNA, what, what's that? What's environmental DNA, please? Yes, uh, so I will go into a, a quick um, explanation of that. Uh, but just to, to Shane's point as well, just whilst I remember what you were saying about education, mm. uh, it's, it's very important. And, and I think it, my, my first degree a decade ago or so was, was English with music. And, you know, so my life was studying stories and, and really having an appreciation for the power of stories. And I think, you know, again, science, knowledge, stories, they're, they're all interconnected. And, and, of course, we're only just now being able to understand the, the profound wisdom contained within a lot of the indigenous stories within Australia and other parts of the world that have captured huge amounts of knowledge and and, and I think for me and probably a lot of other people's uh, you know Carl Sagan's series Cosmos was a real sort of awakening uh, for that kind of involvement in science and, and I think uh, too much education is teaching people the answers or this is you know we mm. went into history lessons, you know, here, here's the answer to this, here's the answer to that. And it's not teaching people how to, to ask that question. And, and I think the, the reason that I went into to using environmental DNA to, to, to sort of segue is because a lot of research also requires, you know, authority or ethics or, or, or money. Mm. And, mm. Um, you know, you don't need many permits or permissions to take a bit of river water or a bit of soil. But the low cost, and, and the falling cost of technology for doing uh, environmental DNA means that it's now more accessible to more people. And just very quickly, uh, the, the, the science behind environmental DNA. So if you uh, went for a swim in your local swimming pool, you would shed some skin cells and each of your skin cells is uh, your, your, your DNA, what's sometimes called somatic or your body DNA. And then you've got your mitochondrial DNA, which are the little powerhouses of your cells, which have separate uh, DNA because they're sort of stowaways from evolutionary time millions of years ago. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. Uh, if you had a swim in the local swimming pool and I took a pint of that water, we would find some of your mitochondria swimming around in there. And basically what we can do, and I say we, uh, we work with experts uh, from EnviroDNA and other places who basically amplify that DNA. They sort of photocopy it using something called polymerase chain reaction. And we did that last night by the fire and then they look to see oh look there's been a there's a linden who's been swimming in here but but of course um we we're doing that with critically endangered species and for example platypus melbourne water and EnviroDNA have done a lot of work with those because traditionally and I, I mean you know until about a year ago the best way of seeing if they're a platypus somewhere was to put a load of nets out mm. trap them yep I mean, count them yeah yep. and, and yep. The, the cost to you know the taxpayer and and the time and not to mention of course the the experience for the animal would probably not have been awesome. So now you can just take a sample of water and there's somewhere between a 90 to 95% certainty with those environmental DNA samples. So not only is it cheaper, it's better. And and I, we're using this as a sort of way of involving people because you can actually find critically endangered species and go, well, mm. if we want to do evidence-based forest management, for example, we can, we can empower school children to go, should we be 
cutting down these trees to make office paper mm. for mm. you know reflex office paper or what have you and that that's a question you can ask that isn't a political question or or party political it, it's it's a question and we can empower people to ask it using data that they've collected and and all we're doing is empowering people to ask that question i think there's a big difference too between what you're doing there with that sort of dna collection and me setting four or five traps for a month and saying oh i didn't i didn't manage to catch any there's none here roll those bulldozers through when you know in reality it might just mean we didn't get lucky and you can't hide your dna for long in, in these environments you know you're going to spread it everywhere so you're going to you're going to pick up stuff that you otherwise might not have found or, or known was there i mean presumably th there'd be occasions where you you find dna from um species that you didn't even know were there yeah certainly i mean at the moment you kind of have to decide what you're looking for. But what we're doing with this method is we're kind of having a biobank. So we're, we're taking mm. the samples of the, the water or soil or poo. And uh, so, yeah, we're going we're gonna to get some sniffer dogs to help us find greater glider yeah. poo, uh, which I'm quite excited about. <laughs> and uh, But the point is we can sequence it now and look for these animals but we'll keep the samples and then in the future when analysis maybe gets more sophisticated we can go oh look who knew there was a thylacine wandering around or uh, or a yeti or or something you know something <laughs> some cryptozoological animal or perhaps something uh you know more sensible like like a trout yeah uh, uh so yeah definitely sometimes it's also looking for the absence of an animal is just important so mm. One of the species we're looking for is a barred galaxis, which is a critically endangered native fish species. And basically, if you find trout somewhere, uh, you probably know you won't find barred galaxis because trout outcompete them. Hmm. Uh, hmm. That's not to say trout are better. Uh, although, of course, there is this kind of eugenics attitude mm. to environmentalism mm. where, you know, certainly in New Zealand, oh, we don't want any invasive species. Oh, but we'll keep the trout because they're good for tourism. You know, that <laughs> kind of, and I'm, I'm speaking as a fly fisherman here. So yeah, it's, yeah, there, yeah. there is this tension in how we, we manage ecology. So sometimes yeah. eDNA is great for saying, well, we know there isn't something here. And that can be just as interesting. Yeah. Or, or it can be a sign we're doing something wrong. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Now, Jack, you're also doing a PhD at La Trobe at the moment. How is this fitting in with your research? Yeah, so I'm, I'm based at the Department of Public Health and the Centre for Health Communication and Participation, and my PhD is looking at genomic research, human genomic research, and how can we involve the public in that? So when I say sort of involve the public, I guess I mean how can we bring the principles of democracy and human rights into research? So so that was my background in the UK. I used to work for a, for a cancer charity and with the National Institute for Health Research, running events to bring researchers and the public together. And, and I just kind of, as I said, I, I spent a lot of my time telling research they should be doing this and thought, well, I, sh I should probably get some experience of doing it. And, and my PhD is very much... Uh, looking at, okay, if we take the axiom that we should be involving people in research. Mm. So to give you an example, if the three of us did a, a DNA test and found out that we were, we had a, a, a genetic predisposition to a rare disease, you know, in the past we might have gone, oh, well, that's, you know, perhaps we'll form mm. some kind of support mm. group. What we can do now, or certainly what will be more accessible and affordable in the future to more people, will be that they can share their genomes online or parts of it with other people and go, ah, oh, actually there's 10,000 of us with this yeah. variation of yeah. known significance. Maybe we could all chip in $10 and fund a researcher ourselves. And that is already happening. That kind of thing is already happening. So my PhD, uh, the first thing I've done is a, a scoping review or a review of about 100 global genomics research projects to see how they're involving people. And the results are that they are being involved. About a third of them are involving people, uh, for example, uh, on 
data access committees. So mm. we've mm. collected all this data and we've got a, a few of our participants and said, who are you comfortable with us sharing our data with? Uh, yes to the government, perhaps no to a for-profit pharmaceutical company and, and actually involving people in these decisions. So in my PhD, I'm working with three different groups of people. So I'm working with uh, the Esprit clinical trial, which is one of the largest clinical trials in Australia, about 17,000 participants, and they've sequenced some of the genomes of those people. And they're basically at the moment thinking we could do a multi-generational trial uh, and they, they say well we don't really know what the participants think about that so I'm sort of saying well why don't you ask them so I'm working mm. with them as part mm. of my PhD to, to actually how do you do that how do you have those conversations so we've run a face-to-face -face event but then with another community I'm working which is people who share the same father uh, and there's about 22, 23 of these people uh, and we're sort of saying well you've all got the same father you are of interest to research. Um, mm. How would you like to be involved in deciding who does research with you rather than on you? And it's that, it's that shift from being a research subject or a participant to actually, you know, genomics does ask that question of what does it mean to be an individual? A bit like vaccination takes you out of the individuality into the herd immunity. Genomics mm. takes you from, yes, you're a precious snowflake, but you're still an H2O crystal in a fairly predictable form. You know, it's like you're, there's variation to a point. And then genomics our genome, our DNA, can only really be understood in the context of everyone else's. And so genomic research is, is really quite interesting because it demands just as much data as we can possibly get. Mm. And that, of course, asks questions of who has access to this data, who owns it, who benefits from it, who controls it, and, and, how do, and who shapes the future of these questions. So my PhD is trying to say, well, here are some ways of, of that you could possibly involve people in answering some of those questions. Yeah. Oh, look, it's fantastic. And the, the other part of that, of course, that people often don't mention is, is as soon as you start collecting that sort of data and you have that data, there's an entire animal kingdom that has similar genes to us in many regards that we can learn from as well. And, you know, many of the, many of the sort of crossover precision medicine type techniques allow you to look at what we have that a fruit fly has and et cetera, et cetera, and see where these genes and so forth work. And the, but the individuality of this, being able to say, I want my data to contribute to this research, I think is something very exciting. And with new techniques like CRISPR and so forth coming around, you know, there'll be, there'll be different methodologies of looking at this. And many of the old models that mm. we've had around data and, you know, it's interesting, I've often said that you, for most people in Australia, there's more medical data on their public Facebook sites than there is in any medical system that we have electronically mm. like if you actually look at just how much medical data people post on on their social media it's quite extraordinary you know you can gather the exact times they were in hospital what procedures they had done you know what their results were you know there's just so much information that people post in social media it's it's almost out of control so yeah. well almost out of control and who should be in control and yeah, the exactly. answer of course is, mm. is all of us and you know some of my colleagues uh, do a lot of work on the the electronic health records yep. and you know and, and I think my fear is if we get it wrong, if we get the electronic health records wrong, or if, if there's a breach of trust with genomic data, will the long echo of that could mm. be a generation. It just takes, mm. you know, one media news scare story for, oh, you know, data breach. And people go, oh, I'm not giving my genome. You know, of course, the dream scenario is people go, oh, I understand the power of sharing my genome. I understand if I donate my data to research. And I also understand if I do that, that I will still be able to withdraw I'll be, you know, for example, a lot of people who go for the direct-to-consumer genetic test, there's that little tick box right at the end. Oh, we're going to sell your data to a pharmaceutical mm. company. Are you? Mm. Okay. And that, that, so it's actually how can we 
bring that control back yeah. to benefit research for everyone. So yeah, and learning from Science for All can hopefully bring it all together. And I've actually got some methodologies that once we're done, we can unite it. So um, yeah, that's sounds my hope. good. <laughs> sounds good, Jack. It's great to talk to you, and uh, sounds like some really good programs going on. So uh, I think uh, people get involved in those; they'll they'll have a lot of fun and learn while they're at it. Good luck with the PhD. Sounds you. like hopefully uh, you get some sleep. Yeah. In there? <laughs> uh, well, you know, the benefits of sleep are, uh, are well known and I make sure I incorporate it into my life. And just, just finally, if people are interested, so scienceforall.world uh, is where you can learn more. And um, yeah, we'd, we'd love to hear from anyone who'd, who'd like to get involved in any way and, and help us. So uh, yeah, thank you very much for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. It's been our pleasure having you on, Jack. Jack Nunn, Director of Science for All. We're going to take a break for some station announcements, folks, and we'll be back in just a moment with a few more things before the end of the show. Three. Uh, you are listening to 3 R. Just got my headphones back on in time. It's a crazy day today, Dr. <laughs> oh, we're having a good day. Now, quickly, you had some uh, last piece of news you wanted to... Oh, yeah, I just rumble. wanted to update people quickly on Hurricane Florence. I suppose people oh, have been watching the news. This is the, the super hurricane. The hurricane. Well, it's been downgraded to a tropical storm now, but it smashed into North Carolina yeah. over the weekend. Some places have had 600 mils of rain. I think when it hit the coast, the, the strongest winds are about 144 kilometres an hour, and That's unfortunately there have been five deaths mm. already by the storm. Uh, but... I just wanted to mention briefly this study that's come out. So normally we have had a show about hurricanes before, hurricanes, mm. cyclones, typhoons. Yep. They're kind of all, all the, the same, same thing, thing, just depending on which basin Where you, are. you live <laughs> in, uh, which ocean you live near. But we talked a lot a little while ago, Ailey and Andrea and I had a bit of a, a weather geek show where we talked we a lot about hurricanes and how they're quite hard when it comes to climate change to figure out what they're going to do and how yeah. they're going to change and how to attribute climate change to certain storms. Yeah. Yeah. But with this particular storm, there's a group from a university in New York, Stony Brook University, I think, who have just gone out and published, I think, one of the first pre-event studies looking at the role of climate change. So normally uh, climate scientists, when a cyclone will hit or a big weather event will happen after the, after the fact, they'll yep. run their climate simulations hundreds of thousands of times, once with carbon dioxide or greenhouse gas levels as they are, and once with greenhouse gas levels um, beforehand. Mm. So 280 mm. parts per million, yep. 410 parts yep. per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. They'll run those simulations 100,000 times each and look at the difference. And if there's a significant difference between the statistics of those two, then they can say, well, it's probably due to the greenhouse yeah. gases. Correct. And they normally do that after the event. But this study, it's just a preliminary one. You know, it's a three-page PDF that they've published mm -hmm. on their website. But they've done it before the right. event, before the, the hurricane even hit which is pretty interesting and it's very getting a lot of media, I think, because that's what the media want to know. They're the questions they ask. Yeah. How bad's it going to be and what's the role of climate change in this? And they've actually, this study, okay, it's preliminary, but they've found that, uh, yeah, precipitation is, or the rainfall is 50% heavier in the wettest areas yep. along the coast because, well, this study says because of climate change and oh. uh, it's 80 kilometres bigger. Well, and this, and this is true pretty much of this Well, I think there'll, there'll be more studies after the fact that yeah. will probably be more rigorous. And this, I yeah, mean, yeah, it's yeah. not peer-reviewed. It's just something they've yeah. published on their Still. website. But the methodology is very sound and it's done all over the world. So yeah. I'm not sure the results will change that much, but it's just fascinating that they can now do it 
before, before the event even happens. And yeah. this is something that I think we're only going to see more and more of in the future. Sounds fantastic. Mm. Dr. Lyndon, thanks for today. Oh, great having you in the studio. Great being here, Dr. Shane. Uh, folks, we're going to hand over now to the team from Eat It. Have a wonderful Sunday. Remember, science is everywhere, and we will have a very special show uh, next week for you. It's going to be run by a whole of Dr. Jenny's students. It's going to be great. Have a good Sunday. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.